The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The longer that I study the Bible, the more I am amazed by its stunning relevance. How contemporary it is. Books about technology or science need to be rewritten because the information needs to be updated. Technology becomes obsolete because of advancements in technology. Someone might say that the, the Bible doesn't change, but only because it's, it's history. It's talking about what was. But I would commend to you this morning the understanding that the Bible continues to speak in amazing ways, not just because of saying what was, historically, as if somehow our interest is just antiquarian, just some historical society. No, it it talks about what was and what is and what is to come because it is the Word of God who was and is and is to come. And this morning, even in Acts 4, as you see the first persecution of this church, what you find is not only that we look at what persecution was, but you also see today what it is. There's nothing new under the sun. The same reasons for persecution in Acts 4 are still with us today. In fact, what I hear often is that as many people around the world reject Christianity, that there, there isn't a notion that one of the reasons why people today reject Christianity is because we're, we're so advanced. The, the Bible is rejected as old. We're modern. Christianity is rejected as antiquarian. We're, we're advanced. We've moved beyond that. But what this text tells us is that persecution and unbelief and rejection of the gospel is as old as the gospel. Nothing new. And what you're going to see is exactly that the reasons for rejecting the gospel, persecuting Christianity, then are still with us today. Let's look at our text, and then we'll pray. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? 
let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Father, we hear this morning the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. We even know, Lord, that there are many washed white by the blood of the Lamb, saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You are not being rejected in heaven. You are being worshipped with all heart, soul, mind, strength. Everything. Heaven rings with worship of you. And Lord, we ask on earth as it is in heaven that today there might be the worship of the Lamb that some who have rejected would see and praise for the first time. That, that some of us who feel overwhelmed or despairing or discouraged, the woeful heart would sing as we see Jesus is fairer. Jesus is worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. And as the rain and the snow fall from the sky to the earth and give seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so shall your word be. It will not return to you empty. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. So, Lord, we give ourselves to you. Fulfill that purpose. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your name be hallowed, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In this text, we see three movements. Luke documents for us first the arrest of Peter and John, verses 1 to 4. Then you see the trial set before them, verses 5 to 7. And then you hear Peter's response in verses 8 through 12. So arrest, trial, and then response. Take them one at a time. First you see this arrest. What happens is that Luke tells us they were still speaking to the people. Don't miss that. It says they were speaking to the people. Remember, the the chapter divisions sometimes mess us up because we forget how connected these narratives are. The sermon is still from Acts 3. Peter is still preaching, and now people are coming to arrest them, but notice it says they were speaking to the people. It's not just Peter preaching. It's also John bearing witness to the testimony of Jesus. And you know this was not a short sermon, some 30-minute meditation, because the miracle of the healing of the man who was lame happened 
at the hour of prayer at 3 p.m. They're put in custody when it's evening, seven or eight at night, and so you've got three to five hours here that's happening where Peter and John are testifying to the name of Jesus. Now, what you see, secondly, is not just that Peter and John were preaching for a long time, but you see the frantic response of the temple authorities. Like sometimes I think we look at unbelief as, well, it's, it's intellectual, right? It's people come in and they say, well, I don't believe that. No, 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 no. They're frantically coming, and the reason, it says, is they are greatly annoyed. There's passion and energy here because what Peter and John are doing is cutting against the grain of everything that these authorities believe. It's not just that they're thinking intellectually, and I have doubts about what you're saying. They are frantically coming to rush and swoop upon them and arrest them. It's not just a few of the priests. It's not just the captain of the temple. Look at it, verse 1. The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. It's like all hands on deck with this persecution to swoop in and stop these apostles. Now, the chief priests and the captain of the temple, they all came from the party of the Sadducees. Now, we're going to look at in a moment who they are, but again, notice that they are greatly annoyed, greatly vexed, upset. Why? Well, you have to know who they are to know why they're so upset. You can look at the Sadducees two ways, theologically and politically. Theologically, they were different than the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they were the ruling wealthy class, and they were people that theologically rejected the oral tradition of the scribes and Pharisees, even the rest of the Old Testament except the first five books of Moses, which we call the Pentateuch. They only accepted that as Scripture. They rejected angels and demons and resurrection and immortality and said, this life is all that there is. And they believed that the, the Messianic age had started with Judas Maccabees and the Maccabean revolution. They, they were not looking for a Messiah. And so here are these people, theologically, rejecting what the rest of the people believed, including the Pharisees, but also politically. Politically, they were the ruling class. They were wealthy. They were landowners. They were in charge. And as long as they followed the rules, the Romans let them keep their power. And so their, their approach to the Romans was one not of confrontation, but collaboration. They wanted to preserve the status quo so they could preserve their holdings and their wealth. Remember, all they thought was here and now is all that there is. So get it while the getting's good. We don't want to lose this, to have somehow an uprising that would come and the might of Rome would come upon them and they would lose everything that they have. So you can understand. They're the ones in charge 
They are the ruling family. And they are the ones authorized, they think, to rule. And so what they hear are these unauthorized, untrained preachers stirring up a crowd. And so on both fronts, they view them as guilty. They're enemies of the truth, preaching the resurrection, and they're a danger to the status quo, a danger to the peace. They're going to stir up an uprising. And so they view them, these disciples, as both heretics and agitators. So they're not just looking at this intellectually and saying, well... We hear what you're saying, but we disagree. They are swooping in. Notice how unbelief leads so often to persecution. It's not simply going to be a matter of intellectual debate. And we can see the same thing is true today, can't we? That when Jesus is proclaimed as the one who has every right over every living thing, every created thing. That is going to go against the grain of everything the modern man wants to believe. Our expressive individualism and the fact that we get to call the shots. When, when that Jesus is proclaimed as being the authority above all authorities, the king above every king, the Lord above every Lord, it is going to cut against the grain of what everyone wants to believe. We don't want to be under someone else. It's not just going to be a matter of intellect. Notice what they were preaching. They were preaching the resurrection not only of Jesus, but in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. See the difference? They're not just saying Jesus has been raised. They're talking about his resurrection and our resurrection, that in Jesus... They come together, that because he defeated death, there is hope for us beyond the grave. In Jesus, the resurrection of the dead is true. Heaven has been opened. The grave will no longer hold us. That's what they're preaching. They were arrested, put into custody overnight. Look at the response, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, some people think there were 3,000 at the day of Pentecost. Now, after Peter's temple sermon, there's another 2,000. So there's 5,000 men, perhaps not counting women and children, or perhaps 5,000 were added on this day. We're not sure. But what you do see is that the ongoing principle of Christianity that's been true for generations. You can arrest the messengers, but not the message. You can stop the people preaching by putting them into prison. You can't arrest the gospel. All that happens is that preachers maybe are imprisoned or maybe they die and go into the grave. The gospel goes on. Can't arrest Jesus and the gospel. It continues to spread and you can't keep God from changing hearts no matter how hard you try. There's victory here. Now, 
What about this trial? What happens, look at beginning in verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? We have to understand a little bit about the, the Sanhedrin here. That as they are gathered together before the very people two months earlier had tried Jesus, asked him the very same question, Luke chapter 20, tell us by what authority you do these things. Who is it that gave you this authority? Remember, Jesus was preaching in the temple. Luke says he was preaching the gospel. Same thing happens. They want to know this question. But what authority are you doing this? Now, you have to understand something about these rulers. The Sanhedrin was, uh, consisted of 70 people because they wanted it to be tied to Numbers 11 and the 70 elders that the Spirit fell upon. Moses was the presiding officer, so there's technically 71 and today, they're trying to carry that over, to say there's 70 elders here with the high priest as the presiding officer. Notice that Luke tells us that Annas was the high priest, and you're a little confused because you say, well, I thought Caiaphas was the high priest, and actually, in the eyes of Rome, they had deposed Annas as the high priest and set up his Caiaphas. So Caiaphas is... Um, Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Now, they've deposed Annas, so they put in Caiaphas, and yet the Jews still thought Annas is the high priest. But they're, they're doing it largely together. They're in the same family, which, as you're going to see, is quite common with the Sanhedrin. You see that the high priest was the one presiding over this, and yet you have John and Alexander, we don't know anything about them, and all who were of the high priestly family. So you've got these rulers largely consisting of the same family. And who were they? Remember, the Sadducees were like modern-day politicians. That's who they were. They were concerned about their positions of authority, their government, maintaining order, and keeping the peace the relationship between their country and Rome, and it, it becomes a self-serving political game. That if you, if you play the game right, you rise to the top, you enjoy power and wealth, and you bring your relatives along with you to the party. We call that nepotism today. You see that these politicians were schemers and plotters, and Lloyd-Jones says politicians don't change much from century to century. We see the same thing happening here. But you see something else. It's not just that the Sadducees, part of this ruling family and the high priestly family and all this thing that's happening, but you also have the scribes and Pharisees. You have people that disagree with each other so sharply about so many things. But what is it? that brings them together, they are all united in rejection of Jesus. 
rejection of the gospel. Did you know that this has been true from the beginning of time? That no matter how many differences that people have, they are united in saying, like Psalm 2, we will not have God rule over us. And so they are coming together, despite all their differences, saying, one thing we agree with, we are not worshiping Jesus as God. We are not going to lose our power. Did you know the same thing happened in Jesus' day? Luke chapter 23, verse 12. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Luke 23, verse 12. Politically, Pilate and Herod were at odds after Herod mocks Jesus. Now Pilate and Herod become friends, united in their rejection of Jesus. Do we not see this everywhere today as well? No matter what country you go to, whether you're looking at China or whether you're looking at Myanmar or whether you're looking at India, with all the persecution, look at America. So many differences. One thing they agree on, we will not worship Jesus. We will not put ourselves under Him. Of all the things that could divide us, we are united in this one thing, our opposition against Jesus. What a message for the church today. Can you imagine in Peter's response if John and Peter started saying, well, we disagree about mass. If the world is united in its rejection of Jesus and the church needs to be united in its worship of Jesus, no matter what else could divide us, no matter what other differences that there are, we must meet the world's unified rejection with our unified worship, our unified faith. That's what you're going to see with Peter now. Notice in his response, very first thing you hear, verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. He said in Luke chapter 21, they're not to be anxious about what they're to say when they're brought before synagogues, rulers, authorities. Don't be anxious about how you're going to defend yourself, what you're going to say. Don't decide that you're going to prepare ahead of time. No, decide ahead of time you're not going to meditate about what you're going to say in that moment. Why? For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. There's a prepared spontaneity. They're prepared because they've been with Jesus. They're prepared because they know exactly what they believe with the very core of their being, but they don't want to try to play the Holy Spirit. They don't want to try to trust in their preparation that I know exactly what I'm going to say and I got it all written out and I got it memorized and polished and my oratory is going to wow them. No, no. They're prepared because they know Jesus and they're ready to speak because they believe in the Holy Spirit. 
That's what you see with Peter. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Do you see the unreasonableness of unbelief? I think that's what Peter's drawing on here. He's saying, why exactly did we spend the night in jail? Why exactly were we arrested and now on trial? What is it? Did, did we murder somebody? Were we drunk? Were we somehow those who are bringing destruction on society? Like you could maybe understand spending a night in jail if they, if they whacked the poor lame man on his head. But Peter said, we're in prison. Why? We're on trial. Why? Because a man who was lame can now walk? Because of a good deed that's done? Look at us. Look at the unreasonableness of this trial. We're on trial for doing something that's good. This would be terrible, wouldn't it, if this spread and more lame people were healed? More blind people could see? More dead people are revived? Wouldn't that be terrible? It's the same thing. Paul, when he's preaching Jesus, says, or Peter in, in the sermon to Cornelius, he went around doing good. And they still rejected him and killed him. Peter's pointing it out, the irony. We're in prison and we're on trial for something good. Now, as you look at exactly what it is that they're on trial for, Peter says, a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? No, by him, that is by Jesus, this man is standing before you well. So here's the unreasonableness of unbelief. Later on in Acts 4, the leaders give themselves away. Verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. You see the impulse there? They're entering in wanting to deny it, wanting to dismiss it. They're, they're just troubled that they can't just deny it because the lame man is literally standing beside them. And so they're saying, what are we going to do? How are we going to deny this? We want to, but here he is. The lame man's standing. All that they can do, therefore, is question the source. Question, oh, Jesus, remember, when he was doing all of his good deeds, they have to end up saying, mm, the source is he, he casts out demons by the power of the prince of demons. They have to somehow deny the source of all of this good. That's the unreasonableness of unbelief. For all the good that's being done throughout the world by Christians, we have to find some way to dismiss it. 
Maybe we'll arrest it. Maybe we'll tell them to stop speaking about it. We have to do something. The irony here is that the name of Jesus is not destructive, but healing. The work of Jesus leads to wholeness, this being made well, and they can't deny it. So they simply have to see that the irony hinges on this word sozo, which means saved. Verse 9, they say this man has been saved or physically healed. And verse 12, they say there's salvation in no one else, this eternal salvation. In other words, Peter is pointing out that this physical healing of this lame man is a picture of the total eternal healing that God does through Christ. Are we really on trial for preaching the only one that can bring total wholeness, the only one that can make us right with God and make all things right, like even the lame or the blind or the lepers. We're on trial, not just for the good of healing, but for the ultimate good that Jesus does. How unreasonable that the world would want us to stop talking about the only one that can save the world. The eternal good that Jesus does. They have to reject it. But here's what Peter does. Verse 11, now he flips the script. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. It's, it's like the Holy Spirit is just leading Peter to do the same playbook that Jesus used. Even this text, Psalm 118, it's the very one that Jesus used. Remember when they're asking him, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus tells them the story of the vineyard and how there's a master of it and he sends servants or prophets again and again to the tenants who somehow think they've become the owners of it and they beat the prophets and kill the prophets, and then he sends his son, and they disrespect him, and Jesus says, what do you think the master is going to do? He is going to go and destroy those people and give it to another. And do you remember what the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees said? Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Here's why that text is just the perfect text to quote. He's saying to these people, you, you claim to know the Bible so well. You claim to be the authorities. And yes, the Bible would say, you're the builders. You're the ones that have been building this society in the name of God, claiming to worship God, having this temple, having these sacrifices. Don't you see, builders, that you have built this whole system up in opposition to God who now comes in the flesh and you want to 
murder him. Yes, you're the builders, but of an anti-God religion. You yourselves would reject him. And now this one that you've rejected as builders, he's become the very cornerstone, the very foundation stone of a new thing that the Lord is building called the church. And there are living stones that are being added to it. 3,000 at Pentecost, 5,000 now. And this structure, you're not going to be able to tear down. He's going to tear down you. That's what he's saying. Now, what I find so ironic about this is something that Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Quote, What a builder wants, does he not, is the appropriate stones, especially when you come to the great cornerstone that will hold together the greatest walls and be the basis on which everything can be built. The cornerstone. Ah, builders need to have an eye for these stones. Of course, amateurs don't know, don't understand, but builders have the knowledge. They know about the stresses and strains. They know about the weight and suspension. They're experts on stones. Show the builder the right stone, and he will jump at it and say, just the thing. What Peter is saying is that you claim to be the builders, and yet you couldn't judge the cornerstone when you saw it. So judgment's being turned on you. Do you think you're the judges? You're actually now being judged by the very stone that you rejected. You couldn't judge the stone. You couldn't judge yourselves. We, he's saying, Peter and John, what we're preaching is that we have judged rightly. This one is the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, and we're building everything on that. Everything that you see, the 3,000 added, the 5,000 added, all of this is being built on this cornerstone, and salvation can only be found in Him. The only way by which we must be saved, notice the appeal to the Sanhedrin, the only way that we can be saved, you included Sanhedrin, is to recognize the stone that you rejected you crucified, that God raised, is now this foundation stone upon which God's very city is being built. And it will be His forever, and it will stand forever, and nothing that you can do will ever tear it down. So here's my appeal to you. This is the message of Christianity. One way. There is one way to God. There is one who is the way and the truth and the life. There is only one way to the Father, one name by which we can be saved, the name of Jesus. How the world hates that. The world wants you to believe that you can believe anything, say anything, have any religion as long as you claim it's just one way, one path up the mountain. They're willing 
to put up with your Christianity as long as you're willing to admit that all religions are like blind people grasping a different part of the elephant and one religion says, here's the leg, it's like a trunk, it's like a tree trunk, here's, I got this, it's like a, a hose is going up and down, here's this. But along comes Christianity and says all religions are basically one. You're right. All religions stress about the way that we reach God, what we do to reach God. But there's one that's different. Christianity stands above all of that by saying it's not what we do to reach God, it's what God has done to reach us. It's not the belief that what we do in one road up is like all these other religions. Christianity says God has come down from the mountain and he has saved us. He's taken on flesh. He died for our sins. He was raised up from the dead that heaven's opened. He takes us up to the top of the mountain because he's the only one that knows the way. Christianity is alone in saying, all these religions saying you've got one aspect of God. Christianity says, It's an elephant. How do we know? The elephant spoke. The elephant said, I'm an elephant. And now everything changes. When God takes on flesh, when Jesus comes and lives and dies and rises from the dead and ascends on high and says, I'm an elephant, it means the whole world needs to take note. There is only one way. And when everyone else wants to just flip out and say only one way, only one way. Why can't there be many ways? Christians are saying, aren't you glad there's a way? Aren't you glad that it's not up to us? That if somehow we had to do it, we would never do it. Thank God that there is a way, and his name is Jesus. And when all the world wants to unite in opposition to him, in rejection of him. Oh, brothers and sisters, the church needs to come together in unity and say it's only the name of Jesus. This message of Christianity judges every claim to be Christian. Liberal Christianity doesn't want to believe it. They want to say there's many ways. Even Roman Catholics don't want to have this simple gospel that says, Only Jesus will save you. It's not your works. It's not other mediators. It's only Jesus. This is the message on which the entire church is built with Jesus as the foundation stone, which is why in communion we see the ultimate unity. What is it that we eat and drink together? We come into this place It's not how we dress that unite us. It's not where we're from that unite us. It's not what we eat, whether it's kimchi or spaghetti or sloppy joes or steak and eggs or injera. It is the meal that Jesus has given us representing his body, his blood. Christians are united in believing there's only one name and he is the only way that we will be saved. Let's pray. Father, I ask. I ask that you would open many eyes and many hearts that if any came today 
in opposition to Jesus. Just like those to whom Peter was preaching. And yet by your spirit, you open their eyes to see the amazing claim that only Jesus can save. Oh God, would you be at work so that some again today would see it, believe it, name the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.